It was a transition time in ancient Babylon in the late part of the 5th, 6th century. And the new king, King Darius, who had dethroned Belshazzar and had him executed, was now organizing his transition team, interviewing candidates, imposing a new political order, the order of the Medes and the Persians, if you will, that was different than the Babylonian rule. And so the king had decided to organize Babylon and its empire and Persia around what we might call 120 different uh, administrative units. And he placed one of his what he called satraps or one of his administrators over each one of those areas to oversee and to guarantee that taxes were collected and that the king did not suffer any loss. It was a wise political organization. But then he placed three presidents to whom these 120 reported, and one of them was Daniel, the Jew from Jerusalem, who had been in Babylon now for, some say, over 50 years, now an old man, but who's pictured in the painting on the front of the of our bulletin this morning that is in Washington, D.C., as a younger man. And so things were getting established, and he, the king liked, he liked uh, his men from Jerusalem. He liked Daniel. He was one of his favorites. He had a good spirit within him. He had good character. And he'd seen enough already to know that Daniel was excellent, superior to any of the others of the 120 or the other two presidents. And so he had a plan to lift up Daniel to be the chief president, the one who was responsible for the whole thing and would oversee the work of the other two presidents along with the 120. Now, you can imagine what the response might have been in Babylon to this. As there is in any political order, there was envy, there was jealousy. Daniel was being lifted up. And as a result, there was intrigue in the capital amongst the 120 and the two presidents. And Daniel had little idea, I suspect, of what was really going on behind his back. And so his opponents, his enemies, began to search for ways of bringing discredit to Daniel. They may have searched his computer for any erased emails. Perhaps they were looking for any entangling business alliances. And maybe they were seeking to find some woman who would bring charges against Daniel for sexual misconduct. All of these things were going on, and to their surprise, they found nothing. Daniel's record was clean. 
And so his enemies began to strategize as to how they could take Daniel down and lift themselves up. They finally noted what everyone who knew Daniel well was that Daniel was a religious man. And they concluded that if they were to destroy Daniel, they would have to do it on the grounds of the law of his God. So they went to the king with a plot. The king wasn't even aware of what was going on. And they said, O king, you are the source of all authority and power. You make the laws. You uphold the law of the Medes and the Persians, and the laws of the Medes and the Persians can never be changed or revoked in any way. Now teach your people, the remaining people in Babylon, the great truth of this. Pass a law and sign it and seal it with your ring that no one shall make prayer to anyone, divine or human, except to you for 30 days. And so the king was flattered. He is being identified as divine himself. He was a source of all authority and power. He was sovereign. And so what would it hurt to pass a law and to seal it forbidding anyone to pray to any other God or to any other person for anything except Him. What an appeal to pride and to ego. And the king, he fell for it. What he not, had not expected was that his right-hand man, whom he loved and favored, Daniel, was a man of spiritual disciplines who three times a day would go to his own home and go up into the upper room. And there in the morning and at noon and in the evening, lift up his prayers through the window of that upper story that pointed toward Jerusalem that reminded him of all that Jerusalem represented in his own life story. And what did Daniel do in that room? He praised God. He read Scripture. He remembered the story of God and the story of Israel, of all the promises that God had made through Abraham and Sarah to bless all the nations of the earth through this family. He cast himself upon God's mercy because he knew he needed help. Perhaps by now he had become aware of the new law and he realized that he was placing himself in a vulnerable position. If you will, Daniel was picking up his cross and following Jesus. Faithful and loyal. And so the religious police 
We're watching everyone, but especially Daniel. And they saw him and they heard him praying in the privacy of his own home, bowing toward Jerusalem, meditating upon the law of God. Daniel was a Psalm 1 man. Happy is the person who meditates on the law of God day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season and its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 1, that's how the Psalter begins. <coughs> and it's a wonderful way to begin your prayers every day, to open the Psalter, the Psalms of Israel sung in the temple and to worship God, and to remember the great story that has defined your life, that has defined our life as the people of God, as the place where we abide in the power of God's Word and Spirit as we surrender our lives into God's care. It was this discipline that made Daniel into the man that he was, that gave him character, a character that conformed to the will of God, a character that loved God more than anything else. And all of a sudden, his accusers were there. And they drug him before the king and said, King, you pass this law that anyone caught praying to anyone, divine or human, other than to you, would be executed by being thrown into the den of lions. It's one of the famous stories of the Old Testament. Most of us know it. That great painting on the cover of our bulletin this morning by Rubens hangs in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. There it pictures Daniel in the lion's den. Except these lions look almost domesticated. <laughs> The king, through the night, has been so restless, he could not eat, he could not sleep. The next morning, he ran to the den, and as he did so, as he approached it, he cried out, hoping that something miraculous had happened. Daniel, did your God deliver you? Are you still alive? Expecting not to hear anything from the den. And then Daniel's voice answered, O king, by the grace of God, I'm alive. He has sent his angel down into this den and shut the mouths of the lions. And the king rejoiced and he pulled forth Daniel from the den and the narrator of the story says that what Daniel affirmed to the king was that God honored me, his faithful servant, who in this trying time of transition had simply cast himself upon God's mercy and trusted God to provide, knowing that in life and in death he belonged to God. He delivered me 
because I trusted in Him. I gave my life over. I was a faithful disciple. I followed the ways of God, and God has vindicated His servant. The story ends in a painful aside that all of the accusers, their family, their children, their wives, were then cast into the den and devoured before they, before they hit the ground. And the king went on to proclaim the greatness of Daniel's God. You know, in a very real sense, the Daniel story is the story of Jesus. Who knew what it was about to be surrounded by his enemies. Those who were watching his behavior, listening to his teaching, seeing how he lived. How he lived with compassion and touched the lives of those who needed grace and healing and hope. He was baptized by John and immediately driven into the desert where he was tempted by the devil to not trust God, his heavenly Father, but to assert his, his, his will in such a way that he could go along with the world, that he could compromise his way in the tensions and frustrations of, of life in that first century world. The religious establishment, they were watching and they were threatened and they were angry. And finally, his accusers brought him before the authorities and they made a case, a false case. They paid off the witnesses to testify that he was a heretic, that he was a blasphemer, that he was a danger to both Rome and Jerusalem. And the gospel story you read, Matthew 26, the gospel story tells us that Jesus was thrown into the den of lions, if you will, metaphorically lifted up on the cross where he was put to death because of his obedience to the will of God and his love for God and all people. He learned obedience through what he suffered. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses therefore we are to keep our eyes centered on Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven be a man or a woman like Jesus be a man or a woman like Daniel be numbered amongst the faithful who were willing to offer up their lives as living sacrifices unto God. This is the call of discipleship. The table before us this morning is a table of gift and demand. It witnesses to the great gift of God's love for us in Jesus Christ and all the faithful witnesses who surround us this morning. We cannot earn or deserve any right to come to this table. We are simply invited to this table because it is here that we meet the living Christ. It is here in this place of worship that we sing the Psalms and we make confession of our sin. We receive the sacraments. We listen to the Word of God proclaimed 
It is here that we are shaped and formed for our discipleship of living lives in a world, in a church that is in exile, (coughs) in a world where it is no longer Christendom. Our friend Mark Laberton, the president at Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote this short paragraph in his book called. He said the church doesn't need chaplains for a church in Christendom. It urgently needs those who flourish in exile because they are following Jesus, not their dreams of the promised land. What that means is that there is a cost in being a disciple, a follower of God in Christ. What it reminds us of is that we're no longer the established church in the Western world. We're an exilic church. And we live like Daniel. And we live like Jesus. And we live like many of the saints have lived. Not as chaplains for the church. Kind of going along with the institutional order of things and doing the religious game and being a pastor as a professional and all of that. I learned a number of years ago there were easier ways of making a living. What I began to learn 30 years ago or so was that if I did not follow the way of Daniel and learn to pray and to worship in private and in public, to come to the table, to meditate upon the law of God, to listen to the word of Jesus, to offer up my life as a living sacrifice. There was no hope for me. There was no power. How could Daniel stand? How could Jesus stand? How can the the New Testament speak of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, simply because at the very heart of Jesus and Daniel was a profound love of God and a love for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son and they were bound to be followers of this Jesus, the church, the early church that lived in the midst of all kinds of trials and struggles and temptations. And so we come this morning not as chaplains of the culture or of any political party, or even chaplains of this church. We come as followers of Jesus. And that makes all the difference. As we come to his table this morning, we are saying to Jesus, I love you. I want to follow you. I want to flourish in this exilic time. I want to be your faithful disciple, even if I'm thrown into the den of lions. I'm with you, Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we offer these words to you. You are here with us this morning. Some of us are in dens of lions that we could never have anticipated. Not real lions, but enemies nevertheless. The world in which we live, in our professions, in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in the life of our nation, we are struggling with what it means to be faithful to you. 
to keep the law of God and at the same time to be faithful citizens. We pray that you will shape and form us to be like you. Give us your mind. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Deliver me as I call upon your name. Be the God who breaks my chains, all the shackles of my shame. Deliver me from the lies that wreck my heart. Come and lead me from the dark. Father, show how strong you are. Deliver me. Oh, Lord, deliver me. When I will trust in only you, for you will bring the victory. You will bring the victory. All your promises are true. It doesn't matter what I see. Doesn't matter what I see. Deliver me, even when I am afraid, when the world around me shakes. I know you will never change. Deliver me, oh Lord, deliver me. Oh, and I. Trust in only you, you will bring the victory, you will bring the victory. All your promises are true, it doesn't matter what I see, it doesn't matter what I see, oh deliver me. Into your hands I will surrender all, take it all. Oh, let my life bring you praise. With all I am, I worship all you are, for you are my only refuge and strength. Oh, deliver me. me.
May we go forth this morning knowing that we are held in the everlasting arms of the love of God, that nothing can separate us from his love. And because he holds us, we hold one another, and we hold this world for the glory of God. Go forth empowered by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.